Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. Today's guest is Julian Buzite, the Chief Marketing Officer and Digital Officer at Amore Pacific US. Welcome, Julian. Uh, Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you, Julian. I'm wondering, you know, I think you have such an interesting background and you've been in beauty for quite some time and been at Amore Pacific for quite some time. But I'm wondering, like, how you first got started in beauty. Were you exposed to beauty a lot as a child or as a teenager? Like, what about it was an interesting industry for you to have a career in? Uh, sure. So I, I did most uh, of my studies in France uh, and including my business school. And I always had uh, uh, an attraction for L'Oreal as a company, uh, the product, but also the, the company as a whole, uh, like the global, the, the global clout of the company, uh, the different organization by division. And so I, through my studies, I kind of like always kept a close eye to L'Oreal and I had started a relationship with our HR department fairly early on. Uh, and so at the end, I, uh, I applied for uh, first an internship and I got it. And that's how my beauty career started. So it was very much linked to, L- to the relationship with the group L'Oreal. So what was it about beauty specifically? I, I suppose in France, it's very different than here in New York in a way, because, you know, cosmetics is kind of the history, the legacy is very much there. So, mm-hmm. you know, was that, you know, just as attainable as a job for, versus, say, like a job in banking or a job in technology back then? I think it was, um, um, there's always been something very intuitive about beauty for me. You know, I was looking at products. I looked, I loved advertising, you know, when I was a teenager, I was like, I was really looking at advertising almost like at a professional way of like the way the, the, the way people were communicating. So I think that was kind of the marriage of like interesting product, interesting distribution channel and accessibility with, uh, advertising. And, you know, uh, a little bit, of course, you know, I've been surrounded in by like a beautiful woman in my, life, you know, my mother, my grandmother, they all had like those lipstick, those fragrance. Uh, so as I was also a bit of like, just like, you know, being a beautiful Parisian woman uh, <laughs> uh, that gave my sensitivity to, sensitivity to it, probably. So you spent about 16 years at L'Oreal. What did you, what was your first job there? I started uh, with the Vichy brand, which is the skincare pharmaceutical brand, uh, number one in, in, in France at the time. Uh, and then in product development, uh, on skincare. And then after that, I moved very quickly to the salon professional division, uh, which, uh, are the brands that are sold in salon, in uh, hairdressing salons. Uh, and, um, I was pretty much sent to New York for 15 months to work on Redken. And it was a short term assignment. I was supposed to go back to France after that assignment and I never left. So 15 years, 15 months in New York turns into my entire life. And uh, I became a proud American citizen early this year. That's amazing, especially right now. Uh, Julian, what's your take? You know, I mean, obviously you've been in beauty for quite some time. You know, the marketing that you probably did in 2005, 2006 is probably very different than what you've been doing at Amore Pacific this last four years and especially these last, you know, seven months. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Absolutely. I I realized... uh, Fairly recently, that the um, the marketing that I thought was marketing that I was doing in the early two thousand was actually trade marketing mostly, uh, working you know with retailers or distributors on promotions and displays, uh, pricing, uh, and a little bit you know of uh, 
advertising, uh, but like there was no social media, there was no influencers, there was not even e-commerce, you know, when I started not to date myself. Uh, we were just talking at the very beginning of, you know, having websites to just present the brand or present the product. But uh, so, so, so the, I would say like 80% of what I do today did not exist literally uh, when I started my career in beauty marketing uh, back in 2000. When did you start seeing that shift? You know, obviously there's been such an acceleration in the last year, uh, especially towards e-commerce and social media. But, you know, when did you really start saying like this was the bigger pie or piece of the pie of my job? Uh, I really think 2010 for me was the was the big declic because um, that's the moment where I moved from a global role at Redcan, which was more uh, product development and, and global strategy to uh, a new role as head of marketing for Kerastas, uh, which is this luxury uh, salon brand. Uh, and Kerastas at the time was the first brand uh, of the salon professional division in the US to have an e-commerce uh, that launched two years before, so 2008. Uh, and that's really when I learned, like my three years at Kerastas were my like learning years of, of uh, e-commerce. We made all the mistakes in the book. We replatformed twice. Uh, that's when I started to talk about SEM, SEO, uh, really understanding what an email marketing uh, strategy should be, uh, as well as all the, the ecosystems that goes behind a digital um, enterprise. And at the same time, that's when, you know, it was the beginning of Facebook and YouTube. We, Instagram did not exist and YouTube was a big thing at the time. We were really talking about, you know, starting our first partnership with a YouTubers, uh, Michelle, uh, Michelle Chen was starting to be there. Uh, um, uh, Kristen Lim, my first Kerastas campaign was with Crystal Lim, who now is a juggernaut and has her own, I believe uh, she has her own, uh, uh, beauty brand. But that, that's when really like that started, you know, and that's why also when the moment where like, uh, New York Fashion Week was a big thing, you know, to, for beauty brands, like we were really doing, uh, starting to, to go, to go out this way. What made you decide to take a leap of faith, if you will, and leave L'Oreal? I mean, now you've been, I mean, you've had a few other stops in your, in your trajectory, but you've been now at Innisfree and, and Amore Pacific for over four oh, years. Yes. So tell me a little bit about, you know, when you kind of took on that job, you know, what that experience was like. Uh, I think, you know, the decision of leaving L'Oreal was not an easy one. Uh, and it's something that, uh, uh, I still, you know, some days I'm like, oh, did I do the right choice or not? Uh, in hindsight, I think, you know, it's been an in interesting journey and I learned so much outside of the group that I learned inside of the group. I think when you're in a big company like L'Oreal, uh, you don't know what you don't know. Like you don't know what uh, other maybe smaller groups are going through uh, and other ways of working. Uh, I don't, I'm not here to say there's good and, there's good and bad on both sides probably. So I, I don't really have an opinion yet on like where, where do I prefer uh, to be? But I think what I've learned, I left L'Oreal for a very small entrepreneurial, uh, role, a startup. And I realized the, le the key learning from that was like, I moved the cursor of entrepreneurial too, too much. It was too small. Uh, it was being the, the first employee of a company. Uh, and where I rebalance, uh, a few years after when, when I entered the Amore Pacific group, uh, in March 2017, so it's going to be four years, uh, it was to open, to do a, a market opening, to take Innisfree, which was a huge brand in Asia and open it in the market. And here was the right balance between what I would call entrepreneurial and big group, big group corporation where 
I had the power of a big group. I had a product that already existed, a brand that was a brand equity that was already established and some resources, uh, both financial and logistical. But at the same time, I had to build my own, own team in the US and build my own uh, structure and brand. So I started in E3 with two and a half people in the team. Uh, and, uh, and back uh, until last summer when we kind of reorganized and I got promoted to a, a broad, pro bigger role, uh, we had 20 people in the office for Innisfree, uh, as well as 80 people in the field with our 13 stores. So it was a huge fast growth uh, adventure, which is in a way, you know, what I kind of signed up for when I left L'Oreal for my first uh, startup and realized quite quickly that it was actually not going to happen this way. So Julian, you know, I think Innisfree is such a great example, like, you know, bringing up that that story is just the idea of, you know, for an entrepreneur and for someone like you with a legacy executive in a way, being able to bring your your skills and your and your acumen to a startup role, you know, how that works, how that doesn't work. And with Innisfree, you know, you had the brand recognition and it was the number one, is the number one skincare brand in Korea. So what was it that you had to do to make it resonate um, here in the US? Because you guys did multiple things in terms of opening stores, partners, all of the above. And it was really obviously successful for you to kind of be in this new position. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, Innisfree has been an amazing adventure, I would say. Uh, and there was a lot, you know, there was a lot that the brand already had. And I would say we the, we always betted on the fact that um, uh, there was a, a an, an organic awareness of the brand through the Korea, American Korean or American Asian community at large because of social media and because of the clout of the brand uh, in Asia. We knew there was a, a certain amount of people already aware of the brand in the US. And that's actually the reason why in the first place we made the, the corporation made the decision to launch a US uh, structure was because at the time they had a global e-commerce that was shipping to all the markets where the brand was not actually present. And progressively that glo global e-commerce became a US e-commerce because a vast majority of the tr incoming traffic and the shipments were coming from and to the US. So that's how the decision to open the US Innisfree subsidiary started. Uh, and when we worked on the launch plan for Innisfree, we really wanted to come out as like a new DTC brand, you know, like we wanted to be the next Glossier. We didn't really want to say like, hey, we're like that giant that giant brand in the, in Korea. We are saying like, well, cool, uh, natural, uh, very efficient skincare offering uh, at a very affordable price point with a sustainable aspect to it uh, and a great star experience as well as a, a, an interesting digital experience. And that's how we, we, we went about it. And then specifically because we knew and that's also where I came into play uh, with with the with, with the, the group was uh, being an expert of the U.S. market. You know, we said like we cannot just copy and paste uh, what Innisfree uh, is in Asia to launch it successful in the U.S. We have to adjust and adapt. Some of those adapt adaptation were uh, all the social media content. Most of it was coming and shot in the U.S. because we needed to have the multi ethnic diversity to represent the diversity of the U.S. Uh, population. So we did the first images of Innisfree with an Afro-American model, with an Hispanic model, or even a Caucasian model. Um, and uh, that diversity also came through our makeup offering. Uh, at the time, we were offering the Cushion technology, the Cushion Compact, which is which was uh, proprietary technology of Amory Pacific and a big innovation. And we were the first Korean beauty brand to 
have uh, 14 shades of that compact uh, and really starting to offer that technology to uh, women with darker skin tones. How would you say, you know, the trajectory of K-beauty specifically has changed, you know, since you've been with the company? Because obviously in this new role, you're covering many more brands. And at the same time, globally, while skincare is still somewhat insulated compared to color cosmetics, you know, there is a little bit more of a minimalism happening now versus like the 12-step routine that we were seeing in 2012. Absolutely. I think, you know, K-beauty was first really known as it became a category, but it was almost like this kind of like hot fra- hot phrase, hot, hot name to di- to talk about you know like the sna- the snails the snail serum, the sheet mask, the, the 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 sleeping packs. So there was no real real brand coming out of it. It was like cute packaging, interesting ingredients or ingredients you've never really heard of, and a few interesting new gesture like a sheet mask, as I mentioned, and then progressively from cute product, individual product, you started to see an emergence of brands or experts to teach you what is K-beauty. Because I think there were two things in parallel that happened uh, in the second phase. You had brands like the Amore Pacific brand, Innisfree, Laneige, Showasu, that started to really invest in the market and expand in the market with a certain level of success. And in parallel, what we do not have uh, in Amore Pacific are founder brands. You know, we don't have a spokesperson to embody the brand like a Glory CP or a Peach and Lily ha- operation had, where you had actual Korean uh, women or American Korean women that can speak from a personal point of view about K-beauty and, and adjust it and adapt that language to the US market. And when you see beyond K-beauty, our beauty brands are successful today and founders brands are successful today through social media, having someone that embodies that brand is also very important. So I think on the more bigger brand like us, we, we started to, you know, do the media investment and the education, but there was also a second strength, which were like more those founder brands uh, in the market. That's a great segue. So Julian, you know, obviously your role has changed in the last year in the midst of a pandemic. Tell us what your purview is now and knowing what's happening in the market with, you know, the trends of founders and bigger brands like yourself, how are you marketing today and what's resonating? <laughs> Sure. Uh, you know, we're changing every day. <laughs> not every day, but like, you know, this is, this is, uh, this is not written in stone and we're constantly evolving, uh, our, our mix and the way of our message, uh, is going. If you look at our social media content from three years ago and what we're doing today, it's radically different. You know, it, before it was just pretty packaging and textures. Now it's much more about education, ingredients, steps, uh, applications, routine, uh, because, uh, the, you know, Instagram as just an escape is no longer, visual escape is no longer relevant. Uh, and 2020, all the events of 2020 have contributed to the acceleration, contributed to the acceleration uh, of the platform, uh, in terms of content that is relevant for the, for the audience. Uh, but overall, you know, my new role is to oversee our four priority brands, which are Laneige and Innisfree in the more premium, uh, type of price point and our luxury brand, Sulwasu and our namesake brand, Amore Pacific. So it's super interesting because um, first uh, it starts from an internal organization where each marketing, each brand has its own marketing team reporting into me, but we have uh, mutualized our resources in PR, social media, digital or creative to have a bigger cloud uh, uh, and ability to maximize our resources to support our brands. 
uh, and that also uh, re is reflected with all the partners, outside partners, agencies uh, uh, for, for the, our digital ecosystem, where we now had the opportunity to synergize and go back and uh, renegotiate our partnership and have a stronger relationship with uh, our ecosystem, digital ecosystem. And then on the front end from the consumer, um, uh, what is very interesting is to see where are the synergies and where are the differences, best practice and learning that we have this ability to uh, to share uh, something that's working really well in a digital tool for an industry, for instance, and very quickly pivot and, and, and roll that out uh, to the other brands. An example of that is during the, um, when the pandemic hit and everybody started to work from home and the stores were closed, Industry was the first brand of our group to launch virtual consultation. Uh, we I was super proud of the, the work of the team. We launched it in three weeks. Uh, very low tech at the beginning, you know, just with a, with an ability to schedule an appointment. And then uh, our beauty advisor were calling uh, the consumers either on the phone or, or through a video call. And we saw very quickly a very high con uh, conversion from that consultation to the purchase on our website and a higher uh, basket size versus our average from, from people that had been through the consultation. So from that learning, we very quickly uh, implemented virtual consultation across all our other brands, and we have seen a significant uh, growth uh, uh, coming from that channel, for instance. Julian, what do you think the relationship is now today with stores? Because, you know, I've, I've written many stories, you know, in the last several years about, you know, your brands like Laneige and, and Innisfree and how they, you know, really relied on partners, whether it was Sephora and 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 Netflix with um, Laneige and all the boys I loved before. Um, and now, you know, this is all happening in a virtual world. So I'm wondering, you know, what do you think the relationship is between, you know, your partners in the store level and then what you have to do to activate online for this larger base? I mean, you know, I think this is something that constantly evolves and, and we have made a successful move, but we haven't completely figured it out yet. Um, uh, I, I think a couple of things there. The, we, you know, through our digital acceleration roadmap, we were ready, like, but when March, when the pandemic hit back in March, we were actually fin finalizing all our replatforming and optimization of ecosystem. So we got kind of lucky and we were able to, to maximize that growth, uh, very quickly and change, of course, our investments and our, uh, programs to, to, to go digital first. Uh, and we saw huge success there. That being said, uh, we know very, clearly from all the consumer feedback, whether on social media or reviews and everything, that in beauty, you still need to put your fingers in the group. You still need to smell it. You need, uh, you, you still need to, uh, to play with the texture and the formula. And that's not going to go away anytime soon. So of course, you know, we, we, ha we need to be innovative and find ways, uh, to safely provide this opportunity of this formula discovery. Uh, we certainly are shifting a lot of our budget and activities towards sampling, online sampling or in-store sampling with sachets that are more um, uh, uh, appropriate than testers uh, at this time, at this point in time. But that's never going to go away. And so as you know, people get vaccinated and uh, progressively we can more safely go into stores, uh, there will still be uh, that, that traffic in stores just for, for at minimum from a discovery point of view. What I do believe we need to watch out is 
uh, through you know being forced to stay at home or order more online. Uh, uh, e-commerce is stick like new digital hab habits are sticking, and people have been forced to discover uh, you know buy online, uh, pick up in store or uh, curbside delivery. And all those things are becoming a convenience. And what we're seeing from different studies we're reading is even though those gestures were first adopted out of safety, people are now see, realizing it's less expensive or more convenient, and they're going to stick to it because it's less expensive and more convenient and might not fully go back to an experience, uh, uh, the, the experience they had before the pandemic. You mentioned at the top of this conversation that, you know, when you first started in beauty marketing, it was really the trade marketing, you know, the retail associates, yeah. the training, you know, which was such an expensive and also but also worthwhile endeavor for brands to get into the hands of consumers. How are you thinking about that today? Because, you know, you're able to sample online, you're able to, you know, touch customers with your Instagram posts and, and social media. Like, what do you think the balance of that is going to look like coming ahead? I think, you know, one thing that I think was just, we talked about virtual consultation, but I think what we just scratched the surface on is like virtual training, master classes, whether for the consumer or for the beauty advisors. And I think this is really an area where I, uh, me and the teams are, are really looking at what's coming next and, and what are the digital investments we need to make because I truly believe that what we realized is, you know, nobody needs to travel from New York to San Francisco and Dallas and Miami all the time. Uh, uh, it's a lot of money. It's a lot. Of, it's it's not the best for your health. So I think like virtual trainings and and virtual meetings are gonna are gonna stay a bit more uh, and it's gonna be rebalanced versus the excess maybe that we had in the past. However, you know, I still believe. You know, I've been into. Uh, big, you know, hairdresser convention of 10,000 people in Las Vegas and this energy and like the inspiration that comes with it will never be replaced by a Zoom call. So I do believe that at some point, you know, in real life pop-ups are going to come back. Uh, can we mix digital and virtual, uh, digital and real life much, much more integrated? Probably. Uh, but, but I do believe that, that, that energy, that, uh, that, that, that the touch, feel, look, feel is going to still be important and relevant. We just need to find better ways and cheaper ways to do it. What are you thinking about in terms of platforms, you know, and, and per brand? Because, you know, there's so many new, platforms every day, it seems like now, you know, today we had a great story by Liz on our team about Clubhouse. Like nobody was talking about Clubhouse like three months ago. Now they're now beauty marketers are obsessed with it. Not to mention TikTok. TikTok is like trying to figure out like their commerce endeavors and their commerce capabilities. So for you, like, where do you decide where each brand plays and, and, and what to go big or go home on? Exactly. So that's, you know, that's the beauty. Personally, that's really why I love having a portfolio of brand versus just one brand at this point, because we can test and try different things and, 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 and parallel path. So of course, you know, at this point, we're, all our brands are on, are, are on Instagram, all our brands are on Facebook. But then, you know, we've kind of decided that La Neige and Innisfree will be the guinea pig to really go heavy on TikTok, while uh, Suwasu and Amore Pacific will actually try more on Pinterest because this is an area where that consumer is a bit more affluent, maybe a slightly, uh, slightly older. Uh, and uh, has a bit more time to like think about like a bigger investment uh, into like a four hundred and fifty dollar cream, for instance. So we, we are using the breadth of our portfolio and a different uh, uh, price point of our brands to test the validity of different uh, platforms. 
How do you think that you will accelerate or will you accelerate, you know, the other brands that are, you know, in South Korea and that, you know, are part of the family, but that may not be in the U.S. yet? Are you thinking about that right now or is it really about building the four that are here and loud? I think the answer to that is both, but I think with a different balance compared to the past. And I think that's been a learning. What the pandemic taught us is we probably had overextended uh, our breadth of portfolio. We had too many brands and too many channels. And when times are tough, you need to, you know, maximize your resources, both financially and in human resources. Uh, You need to make priority choices. And so, uh, uh, we we first need to really make a, a, a significant jump uh, in seeding uh, uh, and stabilizing and establishing our four priority brands, and then we'll, we're going to start considering um, ad- additional brands or additional channels. But we need to really uh, make a strong success out of those four priority brands. We already have a fifth and a sixth brand in mind, and we're already starting to either you know prepare for those launches, whether with a, um, a clinical studies on the US consumer to get prepare our claims and everything. But I don't see that uh, coming for another 12 to 18 months uh, until we really have uh, moved the needle on our four priority brands. In terms of priorities for your four priority brands, you know, what is, what's the goal this year? Because I mean, I, I know that you're, you've seen significant growth in your online channels and your U.S. business here, but like, what is the target? What are you hoping for as 2021 comes to pass? Sure, I think, you know, all our brand can benefit from more awareness, uh, even Laneige, which Laneige is certainly more advanced in that field than the other ones, but even Laneige, you know, we're so happy to be part of the Sephora birthday kit this year. Uh, because uh, that gives us a completely new uh, pipeline of consumers that are going to discover the brand uh, by trying new, new new samples of our bestsellers. And we know this program is proven to uh, generate significant uh, recruitment of new consumers. Uh, and all the other brands, uh, they they still have a way to go in terms of awareness. Uh, we know we are like more... more um, uh, more popular through the uh, American Asian community. We, we actually made a lot of progress also with Hispanic and Afro-Americans. Uh, and, uh, and we're continuing on, on, uh, on all demographics to, 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 to push the brands. And I would say the, another priority is really to make the brands more accessible and more visible. So, you know, we're really thinking of, uh, of channel expansions. Uh, Laneige and Innisfree are going to go at Sephora with calls, uh, which is certainly going to help us continue to penetrate uh, deeper into the, the, the U.S. market. Uh, we are uh, learning on Amazon right now. Amore Pacific and Mamond are on Amazon. Uh, we're soon going to be launch uh, additional brands on Amazon. So we're continuing to 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 test the water both on digital channels as well as uh, brick and mortar channels. When you think about, you know, that consolidation that you just talked about, you know, with Sephora and Kohl's, and I mean, it's happening across the space, you know, Ulta's going into Target, et cetera. What is your perception or what's your take on and the overall landscape? Is it getting smaller in a way, but at the same time getting bigger? Like, what what are you thinking? I think it's getting more, more complex and more blurry by the day. Uh, and I think this is, again, very consumer-centric, you know, consumer-centric driven. Uh no longer one consumer is exclusive to one channel. You know, yeah, people are shopping at Target and are shopping at Sephora and are shopping on Amazon and, and are shopping on brand.com directly. So, uh, so having 
uh, a broad, you know, uh, reach uh, is important. After you need to find the right partners that makes it, uh, that, that gives you, um, that special relationship and that special visibility because at the same time there is a, an explosion of access, there's an explosion of brands and an explosion of products. So I don't think, you know, uh, it's wise for a brand to be everywhere and to be just in the background. What, you know, I think the Laneige example at Sephora is, is, is the perfect best practice. Uh, uh, Laneige officially, uh, um, uh, broke the, the top 10 skincare brand at Sephora in, in 2020, which is a huge achievement. And that was done in less than three years. Uh, and it's because it was narrow and deep, focused, 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 and an amazing partnership with Sephora and great opportunities for you ex extra visibility. When you think about, you know, obviously, I think one of the things we see in beauty a lot is just, you know, when something works, you want to kind of keep doing it. You want to keep doing it and maybe not necessarily iterating, but trying to also, you know, accelerate and focus on new endeavors. So when you think about what, you know, your other brands need to do this year, you know, whether it's at Sephora or, you know, on Amazon, you know, how are you kind of tailoring each brand to the right channel? I say, you know, we're, uh, of course, you know, we're not done with digital. So each, each brand has its own digital roadmap, uh, either for their DTC expansion or, uh, sorry, brand.com extension, uh, or, uh, with new digital partners, uh, any retailers. So we are very much closely, closely working with, uh, what could be next. Um, and then after, uh, I think, you know, each brand still, as very much to continue to refine uh, their platform of communication and content for social media. Uh, what do we stand for? What do what how what how do we educate our consumers? Uh, what's the difference between the social grid of Sulwesu versus Innisfree, for instance? Uh, so we're we're uh, we're continuing to refine our brand equity and how it translates into content and communication to the consumer. Thank you so much, Julian. It was great having you. It was such a great conversation. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And of course, that means if you haven't subscribed, please hit that button.